0: She is sure, she is strong, she is true, she is brave, she is bold, she is you. She is sure, she is strong, she is true, she is brave, she is bold, she is you. You're tuned in to Word of Mom Radio here on the Word of Mom Media Network. Hi, everybody.
1: Welcome back to our show. We're an open book. My name is Chris McMurray.
2: And I'm Gene McMurray.
1: He's my husband. He'll be behind the scenes making sure everything is running smoothly.
2: As always, I'll be telling you what what I think all along the way.
1: I have no doubt. On this show, we discuss those difficult situations that a lot of families go through, but are often not talked about. Here we will, because like we said, we're an open book. In our relationship, we've dealt with marriage, divorce, remarriage to each other, addiction, sobriety, losing a business because of injury, and the ultimate sorrow of losing our son, Scott.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode five. And Chris, how are you today, my darling? (laughs) Okay, but we're going to be
1: talking about a lot of heavy-duty things today.
2: We are. For anyone who might be joining us for the first time, this podcast is about our life as told in our book, Live, Laugh, Lie. We hope that you identify with some of it and, you, and know that you are not alone.
1: It is no fun feeling alone. That's why we're an open book.
2: Hey, Like we said, there's a lot of stuff to talk about today. But the first thing is, I am so glad that you had a fantastic Mother's Day. I know it's been a tough day for you for the past 11 years.
1: It was a great Mother's Day. Kim surprised us with a visit, and we had so much fun.
2: We went to the beach, had a couple of walks and a barbecue, some really good family time. We're just sorry that our son-in-law couldn't make it. He was away on business.
1: Well, hopefully next time. You know, I was thinking about Mother's Day and holidays in general, and I can recognize that I've come a long way since Scott passed.
2: I know, Mother's Day and Father's Day are particularly difficult for someone who's lost a child, but also for people who've recently lost a parent, for that matter. In fact, holidays are minefields when grieving anyone. There are so many triggers at those times. It's when our loved one's absence is felt the most.
1: It's so true. It took me about seven years before I was okay to enjoy a holiday. There was a time when if someone even wished me a happy Mother's Day, I would burst out crying.
2: That's why we isolated a lot right after Scott died. Looking at other families that are happy and intact was really hard and caused some unreasonable resentments.
1: Yeah, because our family was changed forever, while others were seemingly carrying on without a care in the world.
2: You know, that's the key word, seemingly. But in reality, we had no idea what those other families were going through or what weight they may have been carrying.
1: And comparing our heartache to the image others projected is an unfair contrast.
2: That was an important lesson for us.
1: Well, we know that now and can see that those resentments were not justifiable, but at the time they seemed to be.
2: Grief makes you react and think in some crazy ways. It sure does. Both of us had moments during Scott's illness and shortly after he passed when we acted irrationally. I'll go first. You want to go first? Yeah, I'll talk. About, we have a couple of stories for you. Yeah,
1: I'll talk about my crazy. Well, I went for a walk that morning as
2: usual. That's what you usually do to clear your head.
1: Yeah, I usually do my best thinking on a walk.
2: It calms you.
1: <laughs> Not this time. As I was walking, I saw a parked car that had the bumper sticker, proud parent of an honor roll student.
2: Well, at least it was parked and there was nobody in the car.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, they were in the car with the window open. Oh, boy. I know. I marched over and I saw that the mom was sitting behind you know, the driving wheel and the son was in the seat with his feet up on the dashboard and his cool sunglasses. And I walk over and I say... You, you must be the great honor roll student. Well, good for you. Amazing, amazing. And oh boy. <laughs> mom, what a great job you're doing too, right? You really got this motherhood all figured out, don't you? And I just stomped off after that, just continued stomping. Up. Well,
2: I wish I could have seen the look on their faces.
1: I am sure it was just shock, and I am just so embarrassed that I did that. But I did do that.
2: Who was that crazy woman?
1: I was probably their topic for their dinner that night.
2: Speaking of crazy people. Oh, you had your moment. <laughs> I limit. had my moment. Well, I was down at the grocery store. The neighborhood the grocery store. Where a lot of people know us. A lot of people. And there were a few of them there that day. <laughs> well, I had gone into the store and picked up a couple of items and came back out and put the groceries on the seat next to me. Mm-hmm. One of the things in the bag was a, was a container of milk. So I got busy doing something like fiddling with the radio or looking at my phone. And I looked down and some of the milk had seeped out of the container onto my seat. How dare they? Oh my goodness. Can you imagine? So I stomped back into the grocery store up front in front of the checkout where everybody could see me and screamed that I needed to see the manager. I
1: demand to see the manager. (laughs) Where,
2: Where is he? So he comes up and... He seemed like a nice guy. He probably just wanted to get rid of me and get me out of the store, walked me out and checked out the the catastrophe that happened in the car. And of course, it wasn't much. And he looked and he said he would do something, get with management and give me a call, whatever. And of course, in a couple hours, I had forgotten all about it. And it wasn't the spilt milk that I was upset about. Of
1: course not. Of course not. But, you know, when you're going through such stress and grief, your mind, you just can't think clearly sometimes. But eventually, life does become more manageable with a new normal.
2: So where did that change come from?
0: Well,
1: of course, the passage of time is a big factor. And I've also worked hard for 11 years to be okay. I start each day with gratitude and thanking God and Scott for choosing me to be his mom. And there is no greater gift.
2: You know, you can't be grateful and resentful at the same time. It's impossible. That's right. But it takes a psychic change to get from one to the other.
1: It does. And my mindset had to go from loss and hopelessness to gratitude and eventually even joy. Wow, joy.
2: That's a big statement, but it's true. Hey, speaking of psychic changes. Mother's Day is not the only big day for us in May.
1: I know, May 6th, your sobriety date. How many years now?
2: 26 years, can you believe it? Talk about hopeless situations.
1: Exactly. I never thought you would get sober. I thought the disease would kill you. But what a miracle. Your sobriety has been such a huge gift in the lives of everyone who's part of our story.
2: I often think of what it would have been like going through Scott's illness and passing had I still been drinking and using?
1: I don't even want to imagine.
2: With those thoughts in mind, as a background, let's get to this month's reading. As in each episode, Chris reads an excerpt from our book, Live, Laugh, Fly. So Chris, why don't you get to the reading?
1: Thank you. This is titled Parting Ways. When Scott was a toddler, Jean began struggling with drinking again. He assured me that he was not an alcoholic, that it was just the residual trauma from finding his mother dead at the bottom of the stairs. He wanted to be able to drink on weekends, as lots of couples did. He said we could enjoy a few beers together on a Friday and Saturday night. Doesn't that sound like fun, he said. In my heart, I knew this wasn't right, but I wanted to believe him. I was trying really hard to cling to this marriage. There were now two children involved. Foolishly, I agreed. Within a very short time, however, Jean's weekends began on a Tuesday. I knew this wasn't trauma drinking. It was full-blown alcoholism. By the time Scott was four and Kim was six, Jean had been to rehab two more times, always with the promise of, this time I will do it. It was exhausting. I was running the daycare, taking any job I could, while Jean was bouncing from job to job. Gene would stop drinking for months at a time. There were difficult times, but there were good times as well. Life was definitely a roller coaster. We enjoyed taking the kids to the park, and we had fun together, the four of us. We were working on our marriage and trying to communicate more effectively. When Kim and Scott were asleep, we would watch our favorite TV shows or a movie. We tried not to argue in front of the kids, trying to present a united front. Thank God for Kim and Scott. It was because of them that I continued working hard, trying to give them the stability that they deserved. It was easier for me to focus on them than focus on myself or our problems. They had no idea that money was tight or that their dad had a drinking problem. They were young children. Their days were fun, and they knew they were loved. I made sure of that. On February 19, 1993, everything changed. I will never forget that day. It was after dinner, and the children were asleep. Gene came home. At this time, he was driving a taxi cab, but I rarely saw any money from his job. I knew something was wrong with Gene, although I had no evidence of alcohol. I suspected he now had a gambling problem because I knew money was missing. He asked to speak with me in the upstairs bathroom. My stomach sunk with the familiar feeling. Whenever I was summoned to the bathroom, it was never good news. We sequestered ourselves inside and I sat on the hamper. He was standing in front of me, looking nervous. I'm addicted to crack. I don't know what to do. Get your stuff and get out. He was not expecting this sort of reaction. He thought I would offer rehab again, but I was firm. Shaking with anger, I looked him straight in the eye and said, there are two children here and you cannot stay here with drugs. I'm done. I love you, but I can't live with you. You cannot be here around my babies. Go. He put his things in a hefty bag and I watched him walk away. I then called his sisters and his Aunt Grace, who all live nearby. I told them what had happened and asked them not to let him in if he came by. I was adamant. Grace lived a couple blocks from us in a turn-of-the-century Victorian home. She was born in that house and liked to say she'll be taken out feet first. We had many Sunday dinners there and she loved us. Grace was someone we turned to when things were tough, who always had a hard time saying no. Eileen also lived in town with her husband and their four children. Kim and Scott loved having their cousins, Jim, Catherine, Mike, and Megan nearby. Jean's sister, Barbara, lived about 20 minutes away, but it was not unlikely that Jean would reach out to her. Do not let him in, I repeated. Sure enough... He showed up at their homes, but they did not open the door for him. I think back now and realize what a big deal that was. They could have let him in. He was their brother and nephew, after all. I know it was hard for them. I know they cried while doing it, but they did it. Now Gene had nowhere to go. I locked all my doors and windows, and I took a large frying pan to bed with me. For the first time, I was scared of Gene. He was on crack. I had seen a lot of 2020, and it was a way our crack users could be violent. I knew that if he fought me, I would be ready to fight back. I checked on Kim and Scott. Both were still asleep. Then I went into our room, and I sat on the bed, crying and hugging myself, and for the very first time, I prayed. I really prayed. Dear God, please give me strength to handle this. Please keep me strong. Please help Kim and Scott. I know that their lives are changed forever, but I promise I will try hard to give them a good life. I promise. I'm scared. I've never been alone, and now I'm alone with two small children. Please help me. Amen. I lay awake the whole night listening for Jane. The next morning, I got up and began my regular routine. Kim and Scott got ready for school, and the children arrived for daycare. When the daycare children left that night, I would try to explain to Kim and Scott that their dad would not be living with us anymore. It was a very long day. That night after dinner, I sat down on the couch with Kim and Scott. They asked where their dad was, wondering if he was working late. When I told them that their dad was no longer living with us, they began to cry. I told them he was using alcohol and drugs and that was not allowed in our house. I told them how much he loved them, but he needed help to get well. I told them how much I loved them and promised I would always take care of them. They were still crying. We cuddled together in my bed and read some books. They fell asleep in my arms, and I cried quietly while they slept. The next day, I came up with a plan. After Kim and Scott left for school, I called their teachers and explained that their father and I had separated and asked them to please let me know how they were doing in school. While the daycare children napped, I made flyers to advertise my babysitting business. At that time, Dean was unable to give me any money for child support. I was responsible for every single bill in the house and my babysitting money was not enough. Eileen suggested stuffing envelopes for a local printing company to earn some extra money. I called to inquire about the job and received four large boxes. I don't remember how many letters were in each box, but with each one I completed, I would get $50. So after Kim and Scott went to bed, I would sit at the dining room table and work until one in the morning. I tried to do four boxes a week and did this for several months. I would get up around 6.30 a.m. to begin work in the daycare and stuff envelopes at night. I needed this supplemental income until the daycare business could build up more clientele. Over the next several months, I had no contact with Gene. Sometimes he would make a collect call to the house, but I would not accept the charges. I threw out all of his clothes, packed up everything from his closet in big hefty bags, Then I stood on the front porch and watched the trash truck haul it away. I did leave one suit hanging in the closet, a suit for his funeral. I heard that he had gone to another rehab, but once released, he chose to use again. One June night, he came by and said we needed to talk. He had decided to move to California. His Uncle John, who had been sober for a long time, was there, and he offered to try and help Gene. We decided to tell Kim and Scott, all sitting together on the couch. The kids were happy to see him. I remember Scott placing Gene's hand on mine and smiling. My heart broke knowing that was coming next. Gene told them that he loved them, but that he needed to move to California to get help. They began to cry. We both told them how much they were loved. I once again promised to take care of them and explained that going to California might help their dad. I remember as Jean was leaving the house, both kids ran to him and each grabbed a leg so he couldn't leave. That was an image I'll never forget. Jean left the very next day. Soon after he left, I filed for legal separation and the following year was granted a divorce. While it was heartbreaking to see the final divorce decree, I knew it was the right thing for Kim, Scott, and myself, and in the long run for Jean, who had not contested this decision. Gene leaving was actually a relief for me. It was hard, but at least I didn't have to constantly worry about him. I remained very close with his family, and I'm so blessed to have such supportive and caring friends. It may seem surprising that I didn't distance myself from his family, but the reason is simple. I felt that Kim and Scott had lost enough. I didn't want them to lose their aunts and cousins, too. Besides, they loved us, and they were heartbroken, and I would have missed them terribly as well. Kim and Scott were understandably sad, but as their mother, I just wanted them to feel better. So six months later, I planned an adventure for us. My best friend Lori and her family lived in San Francisco, and she found us really cheap airfare so we could visit her. We saw all of this beautiful city, and one night we camped in Redwood Park. We were there for about four days. And it was just what we needed. Wow. Thanks,
2: Chris. That's really a tough passage to hear. And no doubt, for me, it was a low point. It was a low point for all of us. Yes, it was. I don't want to turn this podcast into a 12-step meeting, but I will expound just a little bit here. When an addict of my type is in the middle of his or her disease, even the responsibilities of family become secondary. I think I spent the night in the woods that first night after I left the house. That's how far I had fallen. Thank goodness you were able to keep the kids and your lives on track. But those first few days after we separated must have been so scary.
0: It
1: was. I was afraid of you and afraid of my new life. I didn't know if I could manage a house, my work, the bills, and take care of the kids. It was all so overwhelming.
2: I am sure it was, but in reality, you'd been doing it for a long time.
1: I was determined to give Kim and Scott a good life, that I was willing to do whatever it took. Their happiness was my goal.
2: There is no question that you gave them that. So now, for the next six years or so, you're a single parent. Let's talk about that a little bit.
0: Being
1: a single parent is so difficult, especially if you're not receiving child support. I was responsible for everything. And one of the tough things was that I had to say no to the kids from time to time. I couldn't buy them everything that they wanted.
2: Yes, but I can see now that they had everything that they needed. I wrote a blog post a while back called Single Mom, Super Mom. And in my research for that, I learned that 23% of American households are run by single women. And of those, only 44% have a financial agreement with the father. And of course, even they don't all get paid. American women bear an unfair burden of the responsibility in cases of a broken family.
1: Oh, I hate that term, broken family. Why? Because I never thought of our family as broken. Yes, you were sick and you had to leave. But me and the kids were not broken. We were shocked. We were sad, but we were not broken. And pretty quickly, we began building a new life, and a life that I'm very proud of.
2: As you should be. As for me, I went to California. As hard as it may be to believe, it would be four years before I would see my kids or anyone in my New York family. But even though I would have several stops and starts towards sobriety, I was on my way to becoming the person I am today. I am unrecognizable to the person who was told to leave with a few meager possessions slung over my shoulder in a hefty bag. Sad to admit all that, but it's the undeniable truth.
1: Yeah, the truth shall set you free. But I think it's impressive that you're willing to share your story so openly I think many people can relate because so many families have been affected by addiction.
2: You know, in the course of writing our book and the first few episodes of the podcast, I've been approached by so many who have told me that they relate and appreciate our candor. It goes back to what we said at the beginning of today's show about never being alone. How did you grow in our time apart?
0: Well, I've
1: shared in previous podcasts how I grew up in such a sheltered and controlling family. I didn't even drive from New York to New Jersey on my own. Now, all of a sudden, I was in charge of everything, and I was making all the decisions. If the car broke down or the refrigerator needed to be replaced, I had to figure out how to handle it. And little by little, I did. My confidence began to grow, and I began to change for the better as well. I did things I never thought I was capable of, and I'm grateful for my time spent as a single parent.
2: My growth came most importantly by putting down alcohol and drugs. They are just not compatible with me. Then I had to learn to be a more responsible person. First, I had to be consistent in taking care of my own day-to-day needs food, shelter, and transportation. Then I had to start taking care of my kids again as best I could, even though I was in California. That meant consistently sending some sort of financial support. At first, it wasn't much, but eventually it became more. Finally, after a couple of years, I realized that I need to move back to New York and be part of my kids' lives. But that's for another episode. It's our first
1: cliffhanger. Yep. Stay tuned, folks. (laughs) But I want to add that you became the person that I always knew you were.
2: Well, thanks for that. Well, this has been such a heavy episode and not a lot of laughs. Some really tough subjects.
1: Yeah, except for the milk story. Yeah,
2: except for the milk story. So why don't we end it with one of our favorite Scotch stories?
1: Okay, we refer to this one as yellow, yellow yourself.
2: Yeah, that's a good one. So one night, we came home and there was a message on the answering machine.
1: Remember those answering machines? Well, this message was from a man who said that prank phone calls have been coming from this number for a while. Nothing rude, but it needs to stop.
2: So, of course, our primary suspect was Scott, and we called him down from his room. We asked if he recognized the phone number of the man who left the message.
1: Scott smiled and said, oh, that's Larry.
2: Larry? Who the heck is Larry?
1: (laughs) Scott said, a guy I call every day, and I asked, how long have you been calling him? He says, I don't know. Me and Matt started calling him a while ago. I reminded him that Matt lived next door when he was six, and he's 14 now, so for eight years, every day, he's been calling him. Scott nodded. What did you say to him, I asked. He said, when Larry answers the phone, he says, yellow. I then say, yellow yourself. Then I hang up. That's it, I said. Yellow yourself? You've been saying yellow yourself for eight years? Scott nodded. And I kind of was giggling because, Gene, when he's six years old, his voice was, yellow yourself? And then at 14,
2: yellow yourself? Yeah, Larry might be getting a little scared at this point. (laughs)
1: Well, I then told him to call Larry and apologize and tell him he would no longer be calling him. So Scott picked up the phone and did this. And as I was listening in, he also wished Larry a good life.
2: Hey, you got to be nice. (laughs) Unbelievable. A prank call that lasted eight years.
1: I know, I know. But I do wonder how Larry
2: is. I hope Larry's well. I hope so. So what do you think are the takeaways from today's program?
1: Well, sometimes drastic measures are warranted. I think telling you to leave the house was a turning point for all of us. It was hard. It was scary. But it was the last resort. It was also a leap of faith. I had no idea how I was going to land, but I knew I would be okay.
2: One of the things I wonder about is whether California was the right move. It was so far away from everyone, especially the kids. Here's the thing, sober, getting sober is hard, and it takes focus. When I was finally ready to get serious about sobriety, the right people were around me to help me. Would I have gotten sober had I stayed in New York? I don't know. We'll never know. The takeaway for me that is where I am today is with the path I took, and I'm grateful for that. One other thing I learned is don't let some kid prank call you for eight years. There is a way out.
1: Yellow, yellow
2: yourself. Yellow <laughs> yourself, indeed. Well, everybody, that is our show for today. Chris, remind us one more time how we can get a hold of the book.
1: Absolutely, live, laugh, fly is available on Amazon, and one hundred percent of proceeds to benefit children's cancer programs.
2: And as we always do at the end of each show, we want to ask you if there is anything at all that you're related to or something that you'd like to add to the discussion, please let us know in the show notes. We'd love to hear from you and maybe bring it up in the next show.
1: Absolutely.
2: So as we do at the end of every show, please remember. That love never dies. Love never dies, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Bye.
0: She is sure. She is sure. She is sure.